This is the American Association of Orthodontists, the Business of Orthodontics podcast, episode 20. Welcome. I'm Pam Paladin here with Kevin Dillard, AAO's General Counsel, and Sean Murphy, the AAO's Associate General Counsel. For the first segment of this podcast, we will address how you can deal with a patient who has filed bankruptcy. We'll be joined by Brian Hockett, who is a bankruptcy lawyer and a partner with Thompson Coburn. Along with him, Dr. Duane McCamish, who is a past AAO president, an orthodontist, and the interim executive director of the AAO, will also be on the discussion. Segment two will revisit what to do with parents who are divorced or in the process of getting a divorce. We'll also be joined by Dr. McCamish for that segment. We'd like to make it clear to our listeners that this is a general discussion of bankruptcy and divorce situations. This is not to be deemed or considered legal advice, and any orthodontist or orthodontic staff taking any action that can have legal significance or consequence should always consult the practice attorney. And with that, I'll ask Kevin and Sean to step in to introduce our legal expert and Dr. McCamish and lead the discussion about the issues that arise with a patient's bankruptcy. All right, Dr. McCamish, in your 44 years of practice in Chattanooga, I'm sure you saw your, your share of bankruptcy cases with patients. I, I wonder how you handled those in your practice. You know, Kevin, unfortunately, that is very true because uh, Chattanooga at one point in time, it's not so necessarily now, but it was one of the number one bankruptcy cities in the United States. So so we, we did see quite a few bankruptcies and every situation is different. Every patient you, we treat is different. And there are some patients that you treat that you would never, ever not want to go on and follow through with treatment. And again, every situation is different. I think what we did in our practice is we consulted with attorneys. We had legal advice on what to do. We would always go on and fill out the necessary paperwork. And at one point in time, I even had an individual go to the bankruptcy hearing, and we found that the investment return was not worth the time that was involved. So every situation is actually different, and I think you have to handle it based upon the individual. But the care of the patient is paramount. If a patient's going to be jeopardized in any way or if their future health is going to be affected, you always take care of that patient. All right. Thank you, Dr. McCamish. I'd now like to introduce Brian Hockett with the law firm Thompson Coburn. It's headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri. It's a national law firm. Mr. Hockett's been practicing bankruptcy law with them for several years now. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Sean. Brian, if you're an orthodontist and you are treating a patient and get served with a bankruptcy notice regarding that patient, what's one of the first things you should do? Uh, well, the first thing you should do is is figure out what the the bankruptcy filing date is. And the bankruptcy filing date is important for several reasons, but the main the main thing you want to find out is what debts existed, what obligations existed from your patient on the date of that filing. And if I'm not mistaken, Brian, the reason you want to find that out is because with a bankruptcy, all debts that arise before the filing of the bankruptcy are what can potentially be dischargeable in that bankruptcy, whereas the debts that arise after the filing of that bankruptcy can still be collected by the treating orthodontist. Is that accurate? That's correct. And it's also important to to be able to inform your business office 
about the fact that there was a, a bankruptcy filing. And in, in most instances, it's going to be your business, you know, the people that are handling the billing that are probably going to get the notice anyway. They'll need to know that for purposes of cutting off any collection efforts. Like if they were making collection calls or sending additional notices about the obligation that was owed, they need to stop doing that. They need to flip the switch off on the debts that existed uh, as of the bankruptcy filing date. When you get the filing notice, at what point should you hire potentially a bankruptcy lawyer to represent you in the bankruptcy matter? Well, largely that's going to depend on the size of the obligation. I mean, there's always costs and benefits to having a lawyer to represent your interests. It probably depends on the size of of the obligation that's owed. I would say for purposes of of preparing a claim, that's that's the main step that everybody would want to take in a bankruptcy case. You will want to file a claim. That, that form is intended to be a fairly simple form. I don't want to suggest that just anybody can do it, but it is intended to be a fairly simple form that can be filled out and submitted to the bankruptcy court. Uh, obviously, if there's a larger obligation here or if there are other other things at issue um, that you want to have addressed, then you should certainly hire an attorney to represent you in the bankruptcy case. Brian, this is Kevin Dillard. I've got a question. So most orthodontic contracts stretch out over a length of time, usually between two, anywhere between two and four years, probably, where the the total cost of patient treatment is broken down for monthly payments, usually for convenience for the, the, the parents or the responsible parties paying for that. So if you get, say, a three-year uh, patient contract, three-year treatment, and you get halfway or maybe two-thirds of the way through that treatment, and the bankruptcy date is on that two-thirds mark, how do, should an orthodontist then renegotiate a contract, or how do they allocate the percentage that is due in bankruptcy because it's not really clearly defined where they are in the overall account? So the amount that's owed in, in the bankruptcy and the amount that you would probably want to file your claim in would be for the monthly payments that had been missed prior to that bankruptcy petition date, that filing date. That would really be your pre-bankruptcy claim. So if there were three months that had been missed before the bankruptcy was filed, then, then you would want to file a claim for those three monthly payments. Going forward on the contract, the contract is technically an executory contract, which could be assumed. I, that would be a very unlikely event um, for an orthodontic treatment contract to be assumed, but it could be assumed, which means they would have to cure any defaults under that contract, and then they would have to continue to perform that contract going forward. And and the counterparty, the orthodontist, would also have to continue to perform that contract going forward. That's typically not going to happen. In most cases, the contract just gets rejected as a matter of law, which basically means that the orthodontist and the patient would be free to negotiate a new contract. Okay, so I think that I think a lot of orthodontists would then anticipate the next question being, let's take that same three-year contract. The patient is two years into it, and as Dr. McCamish mentioned earlier, the health of the patient should always be of primary concern to the orthodontist. You should separate out the, the financial portion of things and what is actually happening with their health and always put health paramount that doesn't stop them from, from taking action when a patient breaches contract. But let's just say in this hypothetical situation, three-year contract, patient's two years into it, they've only paid maybe one or two months of that, and the orthodontist has continued to treat. So they have, let's say, 16 missed payments in there. You're saying that at the date of bankruptcy, two-thirds of the way through, the orthodontist can renegotiate a, co a contract moving forward, but how would they calculate then that amount 
moving forward when they know that that patient has missed 16 months prior? In order to figure out what that would be, you would really have to look at what the real cost or the real charges would be for completing the course of treatment. If anything is taken away from this, this should be a very strict rule. You cannot require payment for past treatment as a condition to negotiating the contract going forward. You can't seek payment of the pre-bankruptcy obligations. That would be a violation of what's called the discharge injunction. Ultimately, a bankruptcy results in a discharge. That would violate the discharge injunction, and there's consequences for that. So you would really need to look at what the course of treatment, the basically the, the fees for completing that course of treatment would be going forward. And that's what you'd have to be really entering into an agreement to, to complete. Now, Brian, I know you can't require or put in a contract that the patient would pay the amounts that occurred before the bankruptcy. What if they volunteered, though? to make those payments and to catch up on on what was owed. Is that allowable? That is allowable. Anybody can voluntarily pay pay the obligation, even if it's discharged in bankruptcy. A lot of, you know, I suspect that a lot of patients would probably make that promise to pay just to make sure that, you know, they're going to be able to get, you know, the continued orthodontic treatment. That being said, that's not an enforceable promise. You know, the contract going forward would really just be relating to the treatment going forward. Uh, You couldn't include in the contract their promise to also pay the past due obligations. The promise, if they want to make voluntary payments, you can certainly receive them and deposit them and be happy that you got them. But I wouldn't count on that promise, and you certainly could not enforce that promise. Let's talk about a case, and I know Dr. McCamish has definitely highlighted the fact that the patient's health should always be the first consideration, and the AO could not agree with that more. Let's say we're dealing with a patient who the orthodontic treatment is not a concern, they're in as good as or better place than when they first started their treatment. You receive a bankruptcy notice, and you, due to their treatment and them being in as good as or better place in terms of their oral and orthodontic health, you decide you want to terminate this patient. Under normal uh, bankruptcy laws, as you understand them, is that allowable to terminate a patient that has filed bankruptcy? There's nothing in bankruptcy law that would prohibit you from, prohibit an orthodontist from discontinuing treatment of of a patient. That's strictly on the bankruptcy law front, not talking about any, as you've already indicated, we're kind of carving out the issue of whether or not as a practice or as as a matter of state law, whether whether anything should continue, uh, whether treatment should continue. On a bankruptcy front, there's nothing that would prohibit one from discontinuing treatment, uh, with the exception of, of, of one item, and that is the very, very unlikely event that they assume the contract. If they assumed the contract, then there is a contractual obligation. Whatever your contractual obligation to continue the treatment is, you, as the counterparty to that contract, the orthodontist would have to continue that treatment on whatever terms were in that agreement. And in terms of assuming the contract, how would an orthodontist know if that contract was assumed? That would, would there be notice given to them through the bankruptcy proceeding? Yeah, there would be notice. And as I indicated, that's just, it's almost, uh, it's a very, very unlikely event. I'm just saying that as a a possibility, it could be assumed. And there would certainly be notice that that was being assumed, usually in a that would really occur in a Chapter 13 case, and that would most likely be spelled out in the Chapter 13 plan. 
again, very, very unlikely. We don't want to leave that possibility off the table. It's possible, but it's not, it's, it's hardly, uh, it's, it's a very remote possibility. So Brian, if a patient files bankruptcy and the orthodontist decides to continue treatment, what are some steps that orthodontists can take to make sure that they don't fall prey to other instances where the patient is not willing or unable to pay? Well, that would be that, that would be pretty much the same that an orthodontist would otherwise want to look at somebody. Although I will say this, somebody who's already filed for bankruptcy and has gotten their discharged can't file for bankruptcy again for another eight years. So the likelihood of them filing bankruptcy, well, I shouldn't say that. They can file for bankruptcy, but they can't get a discharge in bankruptcy for another eight years. So that risk is kind of off the table. Other than that, though, the, the risk of non-payment from uh, from from a patient in that in that instance is pretty much the same as as any other patient. Obviously, they've already indicated that they may have some financial difficulties. Although, frankly, after a bankruptcy is filed, a lot of their debt is also discharged, so they have less. You know, they kind of have less obligations to worry about than than maybe some of their other patients that are um, still continuing uh, and have not filed. You know, are still continuing. To, you know, to pay their bills and haven't filed for bankruptcy. So, I would say it's pretty much the same. I mean, obviously, they could expect. You know payment up front for, you know, before treatment is begun. But that's, again, that kind of goes on a case-by-case basis, I would, I, would, I would think. All right, Brian. Well, we appreciate your time and giving us some insight on uh, different bankruptcy snares and issues that pop up frequently. Again, Brian Hockett's with the law firm Thompson Coburn in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you so much, Brian. You're welcome. Trying to straighten your teeth yourself can cause serious damage and tooth loss. Moving teeth is a healthcare procedure that needs the supervision of an orthodontist. These are experts in moving teeth and aligning jaws. For more, visit mylifemysmile.org. This is Pam Paladin, and we're back with segment two of episode 20 of the Business of Orthodontics podcast. Kevin Dillard, AAO's General Counsel, and Sean Murphy, AAO's Associate General Counsel, are with me, and we extend a warm welcome to our special guest, Dr. Duane McCamish, who joins us for this segment. Dr. McCamish is an orthodontist with 44 years of experience in practice. He is also past president of the AAO and the interim executive director for AAO. Our topic is divorce, a subject that generates a number of calls to our AAO legal department, and Dr. McCamish. Kamish, you have scads of experience when it comes to divorce and orthodontic practice. Not personally. Not personally. (laughs) (laughs) Yet. Pam, you know, unfortunately, uh, that's true. We know that over 50% of our population are in a divorce relationship. And because of that, many patients that we treat are also affected by that. The one criteria that you you always have to establish, and I really learned this the hard way, uh, because sometimes you try to be the nice guy. You try to go on and divide accounts, and you say, well, you do this and you do that. But from a legal standpoint, it's not the right way. And the right way is to have one of the individuals, usually the custodian, the guardian, whoever is has primary custody of that patient, they sign as the primary responsibility person for that account. 
they can have an arrangement between themselves. And this is how we structured in, in our office, where they have an arrangement. We even made arrangements where separate payments could be kept in, and we keyed it in the same account. But in the end, one person was directly responsible for that patient, the financial responsibility that was due our office for that patient. And uh, in the event of non-payment, that person was the one that was responsible. And has that been a good system for your office? It, it's a system that I established, and now my two partners and my office is still following through. I'm sure there's been some tweaking with the technology out there and the way that we code it when it's put in, but we know which part of the of the two parties made the payment, and we know if it becomes defaulted, we send out an individual notice to that part as well as the person responsible that there has been a default on that part. Ideally, you would like one payment to come in from both individuals. But in the real world, that really doesn't always happen. It sounds like you're saying in a way that uh, you're managing expectations for these parents. So they, they, they know what to expect and you know what to expect. Yeah. You know, most of the time, the best situation is where the parents are working together and they really want what's best for their child. Unfortunately, in some situations, there's a lot of pulling and tugging and the child gets caught in the middle and one of the parents does not want to take on the responsibility that they really should as a parent. Well, Dr. McCamish, is there some point that you could recommend that if an orthodontist or the staff is kind of caught in the middle, at what point would they consider consulting their practice attorney? You know, you would hope that would never get to that point, but there are occasions where it does need to be turned over to the attorney. And if, in fact, that happens, you really want to stay out of it as much as you can, and you definitely stay out of it in the treatment of the patient. You, you always take care of the patient. You provide the treatment that they need. I have never and would never advise suspending treatment or stopping treatment because of a lack of payment. You have put patients first, and that's commendable. That's what we all do. That's part of our code of ethics. Well, Kevin and Sean, I know that you get a lot of calls from our members that have to do with divorce and patients. Let's uh, pick up on what Dr. McCamish was talking about and, and, and bring it down to contracts. What about arranging a contract for divorced parents, Kevin? Can What kinds of things should an orthodontist keep in mind? A lot of things. And I would say, by the way, as far as this volume of calls, this is probably one of the most frequently asked questions of the legal department is that uh, an office has divorced parents and, and there's some kind of conflict, and we'll get into some of the other conflicts. Regarding contracts, I think Dr. McCamish alluded to the fact of having one responsible party as the uh, the person who pays. So you have one parent, usually the custodial parent to pay. That is an excellent way to go about doing it. An alternative, if that is not acceptable to the, the custodial parent, is to have uh, what's called joint and several liabilities. So both parents sign the contract and they are both individually and jointly liable for the entire amount of the contract. So like Dr. McCamish said, it doesn't matter who pays on the bill. One person or two people individually and jointly should be responsible for that entire amount. What you never want to do, and we've said this in, in, in different podcasts, legal summaries, don't ever split the contract 50-50. Uh, because when you split the contract 50-50, which is what often the parents want to do, you have a situation where if one parent stops paying on the treatment on their contract, then you face a really untenable choice, a bad choice. You either continue with treatment and you're not getting paid for half of it, or you stop treatment and you potentially put the patient's health at risk, 
but you also breach the contract of the parent who is still paying. So that's that's a that, that's really the reason why you never want to do these split contracts. Pam, in terms of the joint and several language, you can add that to a contract and have both parents sign one contract. In a divorce situation, you can also have both parents sign individual contracts for the full amount. Of course, you're not going to collect the full amount twice, but it gives you the ability to go after either parent for the full amount should one stop paying. I mean, the issue is when you only have a contract with one parent, should they file bankruptcy? As the prior segment discussed, they then can discharge that debt and you're left without any payment. If both parents have an obligation to make the orthodontic payment, the full amount, then you don't have as much of a concern with inability of just one party to pay. You're doubling your chances of getting paid the full amount. This must happen with some frequency for us to be discussing this. It happens with a great deal of frequency. And my advice whenever it's a divorce situation, orthodontists and their staff have a lot of education. They're not divorce attorneys, divorce lawyers, divorce judges, or mediators. So anytime parents ask them to play those roles, they should really be hesitant and say, look, our job here is to provide orthodontic services. It's not to get in the middle of your marital dispute. It's not to take sides. Rather, it's to provide the orthodontic services to your child. If a parent continues to want them to read divorce decrees or side with them or write letters to the other side, they should either, as Dr. McCamish indicated, contact the attorney for their practice or alternatively tell the parent, look, we're not going to be put in this situation. I thought we were all on the same page when our services began in terms of we would be providing orthodontic services, but since you're putting us in these situations, we may have to readdress whether we can continue treating your child because it's putting us in an uncomfortable position. Kevin and Sean, you both take uh, a fair number of calls from our members who are dealing with uh, issues that come with divorce. Can you give our listeners one or two examples that might be typical of the kinds of questions that that your callers might pose and and the best practices to resolve those? Yeah, Pam, the most unfortunate instances is where uh, Dr. McCamish alluded to this, when, when the parents are not getting along and they use the treatment of the child is sort of a legal football to lob at each other in custody proceedings or alimony proceedings, that kind of thing, where typically the dad is trying to get financial records of what has been paid. They try to force the orthodontist, the orthodontic office into signing a statement saying that the orthodontic treatment was not strictly medically necessary. It's putting the orthodontic office at a very in a very awkward position, like Sean mentioned. Were there kind of being forced to give up information where one parent is is pitting uh, what they're doing in that office against the other parent and trying to use that as as an argument in court so that they shouldn't have to pay as much or something like that. And to Sean's point, the most important thing to do is to stay out of that kind of thing to say, we are here for one reason and one reason only, to provide excellent health care, orthodontic health care to the child. We're not going to get involved. We're not going to be emotional support for the divorce proceedings. We're not going to be playing one side against the other. We're here to provide the service. We want to get paid for the service and we want to provide service. That said, part of this unfortunate series of events is that good orthodontic health care requires a lot of teamwork. That requires good orthodontic care. It requires good staff assistance at the orthodontic office. It requires cooperation of the parent of the patient and cooperation of the parent often because they are the ones enforcing the good oral health and hygiene at home. And when this kind of turmoil starts in the home, 
it bleeds over into orthodontic health care. And unfortunately, probably a much higher percentage of, of divorced parents have patients in treatment where you're going to have less than perfect outcomes because other things are getting ignored, more higher chance of missed appointments, higher chance of, of hygiene issues and that kind of thing. And that, that is the most unfortunate thing. So that really is the number one thing that I tell people to keep in mind is focus on the health of the patient and focus on that 100% and try not to get involved to the possible extent that you can legally outside of those proceedings. Pam, from my perspective, a lot of times I'll get calls and orthodontists and their staff, they're very friendly individuals. They're trying to help their patients out in whatever way they can. And they start going down a road that it's hard to put the car in reverse and back themselves out of that particular path. What'll happen is one of the parents will get an in with a staff or the doctor. They'll have the staff or doctor in a quick aside agree to something that they should not be agreeing to, whether that's reviewing a divorce decree whether that's writing a letter, whether that's sharing information that let's say the other parent does not want shared. Anytime a divorced parent tells you they want to do something or not do something that you know the other parent is not going to like or would be against, you need, I think, staff or orthodontist to be very quick in your reply to say, look, again, I'm not getting put in the middle of this. This is something that I think we can all agree the other parent would want to know or this is information the other parent will want to have. So I'm going to give you several days to work this out to get you and that other parent on the same page. If you can't get there, I have to call that other parent and make them aware of it. If that's something that it might have from an orthodontist perspective or staff's perspective, greater consequences, I definitely consult the practice attorney before making that call. But you don't want to be involved in hiding information or working with one parent as opposed to another parent, because inevitably what happens is you upset one of the parents. And that's going to be the thing that ends up in some sort of lawsuit, ends up in some sort of online review, a negative review. And those are things that's hard to uh, get then that parent that feels betrayed or that feels like you've taken sides to make them understand that you're just trying to provide orthodontic services and that wasn't your intent. So I, I'm always of the mindset you tell everyone we're, we're treating your child as a team. We're all part of the team. If you two cannot be on the same page, then this is a team ourselves we don't want to be a part of, and you're going to have to seek your orthodontic care at a different office. And usually that is a wake-up call for those parents. It sounds then like the orthodontist not only needs to be prepared, but also the staff needs to be prepared. Absolutely, Pam. One thing in that regard is, you know, look, when it, when it comes to an orthodontic office verifying who has the authority to do what, they're not processing passports. They're, they don't have to go to the level of scrutiny to make a parent prove that they have the sole responsibility or sole ability to direct health care for their child. They can reasonably assume when a, when a parent walks in that they are presenting the, the patient and that that parent has the full authority to enter into health care decisions kind of a subcategory of disputes that arise in divorce cases is that one parent brings a child in, they enter into the patient contract, and then the other parent then disputes the fact that it's even necessary. I kind of alluded to that with the medically necessary orthodontic care. What the orthodontist then really has to do, once they become aware that there is some dispute, some issue that leads them to believe that that parent may not have the 100% complete ability 
to direct treatment for the child, they need to go back to that parent or to the parent that's challenging it and saying, we need to see the documentation so that they can then turn it over to their attorney if necessary. Because then at that point, they're made aware that there's some kind of issue, some kind of dispute. They should put the treatment on hold for a few days and just to make sure that they've got all the documentation that they need. Because the last thing you want is to be doing medical procedures on a child without full authority to do so. That can lead into some unwanted legal issues for the practice. And if one parent, if the parent that's trying to obtain orthodontic services or treatment for their child does not have complete or full custody to make those decisions, or let's say the, uh, those decisions are a 50-50 custody arrangement, if there's a 50-50 custody arrangement that allows both parents to have to weigh in on those type of medical decisions and treatment, then if I was the orthodontist, I would not proceed with treatment until both parents agree that they would like treatment to proceed. Many times, you'll have one parent that wants treatment, the other parent, for whatever reason, sometimes it's reasons that deal more so with a hostile divorce situation, they say, I don't want treatment. And the problem you really establish there, unless the parent that has the full custody and ability to make those treatment decisions, unless they have 100% control of that is that if the other parent says no and they have any ability to weigh in on that, you are now continuing with a course of treatment that one parent is against. And think about if you have a bad treatment outcome or if unfortunately the, the child is somehow injured or, or gets a negative result in your care, that parent will hang that over your head. And oftentimes, even the parent that wanted the treatment will have what I like to call short-term amnesia and say, even though I signed that agreement, I don't remember it, and I can't believe why you would ever allow treatment to move forward when one of the parents was completely against it. And you don't want to be put in that situation trying to explain yourself as to why you proceeded with treatment when one of the parents who had the ability to weigh in on their child's health care was against it. Does HIPAA ever enter into these kinds of situations? Well, typically in most divorce situations, even regardless, I should say, of the custodial situation, both parents have the full right to the medical information of the child and the procedures that are happening. Now, that should not be confused necessarily with the financial side of things. So in a typical case, you have a, a divorce family, the mom has custody of the child, and she has full ability to make medical decisions. She enters into a contract with your office. You don't even know the dad exists out there. But a year into a two-year treatment, he calls you and says, I'm the parent of this child. I want to know what is happening with my child, where they are in treatment, and I want to know how much has been paid on the account and what is left on the account. At that point, what the office should do is take the information, the name, address, and phone number of the person who's calling, call the mom in this case, run it by the mom and say, this person is called, they want this information. Unless you can tell us otherwise, if that is in fact the dad, we have an obligation by state statute or regulation to turn the medical information over to the dad. Now, he's also asking for financial information, and we're only going to turn that over to him if you give us express written consent to do so. That would be the appropriate way to handle that. And in that case, when you're talking to dad and he makes that request, let it be known to dad that you will be calling mom. The key with divorce situations is there's never any surprises. You don't want one parent telling you to do or not do something, and then you end up doing it because you know it's the right thing 
So if a parent tries to tell you, no, you shouldn't do this or you should do that, you'd say, I don't think that that, you know, is full disclosure. We need to be open and honest with both parents. So I will be calling the other parent, sharing this information with them. Is that all right with you? If they say, no, that's not all right, that should be a red flag. And that's when you have the conversation with that parent. We're not all on the same page. And that's alarming to us as the treating orthodontist. And we need to determine whether we can continue with treatment since we're not on the same page. Or alternatively, you need to consult with your attorney and figure out exactly what you are able and not able to do in those situations. Another situation that frequently comes up, and I think Dr. McCamish and Kevin both alluded to it, is where you have two parents and they want to have a split contract in terms of payment. And as we've you know, discussed, Dr. McCamish, the way he practiced, he made sure he had the custodial parent be the one that was signing the treatment agreement. Kevin and I are both of the mindset that's perfectly acceptable to even provide a greater guarantee of payment. You can have both parents sign a separate agreement. If the parents are saying, though, that they want to divvy up the payment, it should be explained to them that that's perfectly acceptable, but that's not something that you're going to put in their contracts. They're both fully obligated to pay 100% of the treatment costs, whether that's together or separate. And as long as you're getting 100% of your payments, it doesn't matter to you whether mom pays 20% or dad pays 80%. Maybe that's in a divorce decree somewhere. That's for them to sort out. You only care about getting 100% of the payment. And as long as you're getting that, you're more than happy to treat the child and there shouldn't be any issues. One thing that comes up infrequently, but, but enough to mention here, is a situation where, let's say mom signs a contract, but the dad is required by a court decree to pay 50% of it or, or to use whatever health insurance benefit that the dad might have to pay for a portion of it. And so then that insurance card is turned in to apply to the contract. Special considerations need to be made for these situations. While the dad is not paying, it's okay for his health insurance benefit to go towards the contract, even though his name is not on it. But a couple of notes. Number one, you need to make sure that you have the dad's consent to use his health insurance. When you know there's a divorce situation and the mom comes in and hands you the dad's insurance card, you need to make sure that you have his signature on the consent forms to use that insurance and, and use that for the benefit of the child. Second of all, sometimes, and this happens even less frequently, but again, bears mentioning here, special considerations need to be made when there's a refund from the insurance company back to the contract. Often the mom in this case may want the refund to go directly to her to pay for her portion of what she paid out of pocket. Make sure that that's okay with your insurance company. Sometimes you get into what's called subrogation issues where the insurance company will want any refund, will want any overpayment that wasn't due for the treatment of the child to go directly back to the insurance company. So that just keep that in mind when there are health insurance benefits involved heavily regulated by the state, specifically regulated by the state, and you just need to make sure that you are acting in accord with your contract and with state regulation. Keep both parents in the loop about there is a refund and we're going to be issuing it to this parent or that parent. There's nothing worse than a parent who thinks that they should have been owed the refund, realizing that the other parent got the refund and then spent that money, and there's no ability for them to access any of the monies that were part of the refund. So 
before if the insurance company says it's all right to issue a refund to one of the parents let the parents know that that's the step you're planning on taking if they have any issue with that to let you or your staff know by a certain date and if that is an issue that'd be one of those instances where you'd want to consult your practice attorney to have them advise you on who the refund should go to great information and members can find legal opinions and summaries as well as sample contracts on aaoinfo.org look in the legal and advocacy section and members also can contact kevin or sean here at the aao toll-free number for members is 800-424-2841 members also can consult their own legal counsel to learn about relevant applicable laws in their states and that's a wrap for episode 20 of the aao's the business of orthodontics podcast Thanks to Dr. Duane McCamish, an orthodontist, past AAO president and the interim executive director of the AAO, and to Brian Hockett of Thompson Coburn, along with AAO's legal team, Kevin Dillard, AAO's general counsel, and Sean Murphy, AAO's associate general counsel. Join us for future podcasts as AAO experts explore questions and issues that are important to you in your orthodontic practice. If you have subject areas you'd like to hear addressed on a future podcast, please email them to info at aaortho.org or call 800-424-2841. This is Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening to the Business of Orthodontics podcast, episode 20.